0: Well, isn't that the truth? We find strength to press on, and he is that strength, isn't he? Well, we're going to conclude with the last of our Beatitudes this morning. And if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to review what we've been looking at the last few months. Again, the question I've been asking over the last couple of months has been this issue of How is the attitude? Somebody told me this morning, don't have an attitude, be an attitude, be attitude. Jesus speaking, it's interesting, he probably took commentators think maybe a couple of days to give this message on the Sermon on the Mount. And if we had the time today, we probably could take hours and it would take us days And I suggest even maybe weeks just to absorb all the depth of what he is speaking on here. And it's kind of difficult that we're trying to do it so quickly. But I hope it's an appetizer, if you like, from what we read today in the Word of God and what we are kind of thinking on and pouring over a bit to do your own study. Uh, Don't just stop here because this is too rich. This is like one of those... Meals that you go to at a nice restaurant and it's afterwards you just say, I am stuffed. You know, I'm full. This was very satisfying, but it's, it's rich. And here in the word, in this sermon, it's rich. And so we start with Matthew chapter five, verse one. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. On account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So again, you know, we ask ourselves this question. How is the attitude this morning? How is your attitude, if you like, Ben? over the past week? How have we and we've all had it? And it sounds like from what Dean announced, there's been a certain, obviously, amount of heartache and and grief at the sadness of the loss of his father, Joan's husband. How have we responded to trials and to those heartaches and to the temptations that no doubt we've all faced? How have we responded to some of those even difficult people that are out there? And just remember, you might be one of those difficult people to someone else. But how have we responded? and as i've suggested before the beatitudes contain the the dynamite that dynamite power of the holy spirit and the beatitudes they explode when the circumstances of our lives cause them to do so and not only do they reveal just how we're at, where we're at and how we're doing spiritually in our relationship with god as his people but if one takes a very careful look at the beatitudes and if you said, you know, to be honest, as I'm looking at these these qualities, these attitudes that Jesus tells his followers that he wants them to have and that they should possess in some measure, hopefully increasing as they grow in their journey on this earth with him. That if someone was to say, you know, I really don't see these attitudes in my life. Uh, I don't see them it's not that they're I'm, no one's perfect, but they're rarely, if ever, evident. Then it might be cause to examine yourself as the scriptures encourage us to do just to make sure that we're in the faith. So we're going to look at these last three, and it's interesting because if you're depending on how you see it, you could say, well, are there three or four further Beatitudes? The last one might be a, just two separate ones or it might be just one of the same. But like I said, he took a couple of days to preach on this and we need weeks to digest thoroughly its contents. And why this is really important is why I keep reading the verses after the Beatitudes is because the Lord, not by fault on his part, but certainly it was planned by his very careful words and he knew exactly every word he said that he was saying these things because how you behave and how I behave makes a huge impact, doesn't it? makes a big impact on our family members. I walk in the house on a certain day after I get off work. Depending on how I walk in, sometimes the dog decides, do I even want to greet him? Or is the dog happy to see me? And usually, you know yourself, your first couple of minutes when you walk in makes an impact of how have you made that impact and what's going to be the flavor, if you like, or the temperature that's been set. So your behavior matters. And it's not the behavior, of course, is the outflow of what's already been going on in the heart and head. The attitudes are what come first, and then we just kind of exhibit them in our behavior, good or bad. And folks are watching. And if you're in the workplace or you're in the school or wherever environment you are, you notice, and you would have to be and have your head in the sand if you didn't, that those who don't know the Lord Jesus are watching our behavior. They're just wanting to see, is there genuineness to what we claim? And so there's no place for being phony or being a pretender as a believer. That's what he's talking about in the context of salt and light. Colossians 4, 6, and 7. I was sharing this with a gentleman a few days ago. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Colossians 4, 6, and 7. So attitude number six, we're getting there. And this is a very profound an awesome beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We need, we need weeks just to talk about this one. But let's see what we can do. Remember what I've said and from your knowledge of what it was going on at the time when Jesus gave this sermon. The political and spiritual condition for the Israelites wasn't good. They had, unfortunately, this bad situation that they had the Pharisees as their religious leaders. They had misinterpreted the law of Moses, and because they had misinterpreted it, they were ill-advised and made some wrong decisions to create their own laws that were nothing that God ever intended. They invented laws that God's people could never even, the way that they felt that they could basically look right in the eyes of men, and of God was, forget about what's going on in the heart, let's just deal solely pretty much with the externals. And so that I can be seen to look holy, I can be seen to be righteous, I can be seen to be pure, even if, like Jesus said, your hearts are like whitewashed tombs. What a statement by the Lord to these leaders. And so for the average Israelite to be under this kind of instruction, this kind of leadership, can you imagine? It would be relentless. It would be the sense of imposing all of these legalistic and rigid ways that they were to behave in under this system. And they couldn't keep it. They couldn't keep it. And so can you imagine what the end result would be on that? If you were in their shoes, you would be frustrated. Many of them would be guilty. They'd be full of anxiety. And so it helps you to understand that when John the Baptist is on the scene, that he really is a very he's given a very attractive message if you like because he's talking about how you can experience forgiveness. And so crowds came out to speak to him. And he was talking about this one that was going to come and he was going to be relieving them of the burden of their sin. And giving them peace for their troubled souls. And so they were looking for this redeemer that he was Not only telling them about, but what if they knew and remembered their Old Testament teachings would have heard that there was a Messiah coming. Somebody, hopefully, that would impose no more rules like the Pharisees had and would forgive them and would have the willingness and the ability to forgive them for the ones that they had broken. And I'm sure it must have been on their mind. And since you get this from Nicodemus and other questions that Jesus got asked by different people in the Gospels, that they were very curious to know How can I enter God's kingdom when I can't keep his laws? And that one question that was asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So in that backdrop of all that was going on, and that's just a little smidgen of it, of what was the history politically and spiritually at that time, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's translated in the Greek, for they alone shall see God. The pure in heart. We come to a verse like this, and maybe this is one we struggle with, because when you hear this verse, pure in heart, immediately we're saying, wow, who is that? Who can raise their hand today and say they're pure in heart? So what do we do? What man does is they kind of tend to grade on a curve. And if you were ever in school, and I'm sure many of you were, you know, you like that kind of a teacher sometimes only, though, if you were the one who got the 100 percent that and then you felt like, hey, I deserve the A and the person that was getting like a D is still getting like a B. And there's maybe some issues with that. But we like to kind of grade on a curve. Remember this story in Luke 18:11 where the Pharisee said, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men. And maybe that's something that you've heard many times and you said it yourself. I'm glad I'm not like robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even like this tax collector. We always have some kind of comfort that we we look at our lives and rather than sometimes thinking who is better than I can look at and want to aspire to be like, we say, well, at least I'm not like that person. So I'm not that bad. Lighten up on me. Someone has said there's two religions of the world. When you think of all the religions, you really can boil it down to two. One is human achievement. Basically, it's about what you do or don't do. And the other really is divine accomplishment. And it's, it's as simple as that. Two religions, human achievement or divine accomplishment. Somebody else has accomplished something that has made a profound impact on how we think, how we live this life. It's radicalized us. Of course, you know who I'm talking about, I think, don't you? When I talk about divine accomplishment, talking about who you worship this morning at the breaking of bread. That one who took our sin and amazingly, and I'll never tire of talking of this. And I trust you'll never tire of hearing it. And I trust you'll never tire of talking of this is the one who gave us his righteousness on that work on Calvary's cross. The gospel story is one we never probably would have ever thought to write if we'd been in charge of writing it. But God did. He talks about how sinful men and women like you and I, apart from uh, far apart from him, not knowing him, born separated from him at birth. And even though we were taught and many of us were taught that it's religion and how you reach God, you just be a religious person. You just do everything that you can do and don't do what you shouldn't do. That's how you can reach God. And we realize the fallacy of that because it doesn't deal with the penalty of sin. When that shed blood was accomplished at Calvary's cross on our behalf and we trusted the Savior, all our sin is forgiven. And now, wonderfully, positionally, the way God sees you and I, if we're his children today, is he sees us as pure in heart because he sees the Lord Jesus when he looks at us. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's just something that we should meditate on and think about and praise God about every day, that that's our status. And then, of course, we know that as believers, that the Lord wants us to grow in purity. He wants that way that we behave now, that these beatitudes, this way of living, he wants this to become more and more the norm. And like the choir saying, again, you will frustrate yourselves And I do not want to have you frustrated when you leave here that this kind of lifestyle is not one. You can live in your own strength, but it's in his strength. This kind of purity of heart. You try in your own flesh, the flesh there dwells no good thing. It isn't going to happen. And that's why the, the attitudes start with being humble, where you have this sense that I am poor in every way, shape and form to be able to be the kind of person that I can be, to be the kind of husband I should be, be the kind of father I should be. To be the kind of coworker I should be if I'm doing it in my own strength. But it's in his strength. And I love what the Lord Jesus said in this promise about being pure and hard. He said, for they shall see God. And awesome. What does it mean? It means that even though with the eyes of faith now, what is happening in our lives as his children is that we are continually seeing God. He's revealing himself to us in his word. He's revealing himself even in the most profound situations, as you saw in the scriptures, even through visions in the Old Testament and in the new in the uh, the book of Acts. And he's revealing himself where somebody is speaking to you and they're speaking the words of God because they're quoting truth. We're seeing him with the eyes of faith. And the wonderful thing is, is we can live in his presence here on earth. Not only, of course, when we get to heaven. We're actually able to be living in the presence of God. And the wonderful thing is, is that we're able to still be alive in the context of it. You think of those people that are profound in our culture. Those people that are the the elite, if you like. The I don't want to call them the mucky mucks, but just, you know what I mean. The people that you and I will never more than likely on this earth ever have an audience with ever to be in their presence could be a politician to you could be somebody else, a movie star could be somebody else a sports player, somebody else that's famous in the eyes of the world. You and I don't probably stand a chance to ever be in their company. And yet we can be in the presence of God. He counts us worthy. We can go to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's not only when we have so special times where we're bowing in his presence, but right now he's seated here among us. What an honor. The Lord Jesus Christ is here at San Ramon Valley Bible Chapel today. And what's happening now is we're being able to see God in the sense that we're being able to comprehend him. Think back before you knew him. For that matter, we could be talking a foreign language before you knew him. It didn't make sense. Some of you folks here are brilliant in your knowledge and in your training of computers and medical issues, maybe, and finance. And you have these giftings that God has given you naturally. But when on the spiritual level, we couldn't comprehend him before the Holy Spirit revealed himself to us. And now we do. And we can't take any credit for that ourselves. That's the work of God. Of the Lord, and we sense His presence in ways that I know that you all know. I remember some of the dark times and some of the difficult times earlier this year when my father passed away, and just the comfort that God gives. It might be through His people, it might just be in some verse that you're reading, or sometime you're just alone with the Lord, and you, you know it's like He's, it's like He's physically there, isn't it? And for that day, First John three two says that one day we're going to see Him. And we're going to see him uh, forever and ever. And it is isn't amazing when you think about it, the things that are on our minds right now. Just think right now, if we could just stop and say, what's on your mind? And we just went down the whole list. Some of these things are weighty and some of these things are real. And they're, they're heavy stuff and they're deep. And they're eternal issues. But some of it probably, if you're like myself, is stuff that's kind of just frivolous. It just doesn't really, really matter in the scheme of things. And when we're in his eyes and we're seeing him and we're looking at him face to face, just think about all the things that have us preoccupied now that will no longer be an issue. I won't be thinking about the Giants. I won't be having to think about the 49ers. I won't be having to think of all these things that sometimes, sadly, actually become a distraction more than they should be. Work. Who can relate to that? Sometimes, you know, it's just like it's a it's a blessing from God, but we have to be careful. It can become a major distraction if we're not careful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And you can say that today. You can say, you know what? Thank God he sees me as pure in heart, positionally speaking, because when the father looks at me, he sees Jesus Christ. It's amazing, amazing truth. And there are brilliant people out there in the world, as I've suggested, who don't get that. They don't understand that. They don't have that joy today on this Sunday afternoon. They have a lot of other things that they're maybe taking comfort in and priding themselves on and relying on. But they don't know that. So I encourage you today, if you haven't already, and do it again. Thank God for the fact that he's made you righteous in his sight because of the Lord Jesus. And then uh, attitude number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Any casual reading of the Bible, you're going to realize that peace is one of the themes. It's mentioned over 400 references in scripture to peace. The whole story in Genesis 1 starts, chapter 2, starts with peace. Peace in the garden. Then, of course, we know what happened there. Didn't all go well. And then the Bible concludes with peace and eternity in the new heavens, and the new earth. Our God is a God of peace. And, you know, as you look around in the world, is there peace in the world? No, no. This time last week I had to work and there was no peace on Sunday morning in Hayward. There was all kinds of stuff. And, you know, there's not even a sacred day anymore, really. There's just all kinds of stuff going on world's peacemakers, I would give them good for intention, but I'd give them an F for the record. Is there political peace? Is there economic peace? Is there social peace? Is is there domestic peace? We have a difficult time getting along with each other at times. Maybe we have a difficult time getting along with ourselves. Someone has said peace is that brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stops to reload. Every piece of monument, there's another one that's built. And the interesting thing is, and this is where James really comes in, because you know it's easy, isn't it, long you've been a believer, to read these words and then to kind of actually come to this conclusion that I'm actually because I'm reading these words, I'm now therefore doing it. And so when I read these words again, I'm just, I'm just convicted. Not in a way that leaves me hopeless, not in a way that leaves me despairing, but in a way that I say, wow, if I really, really, really believe what the Lord is saying here and I'm relying on him to help me be this kind of person, how powerful is this? And when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, a number of things come to mind. God wants you and I. And this is a challenge. He wants us to be his agents. To be involved in whatever degree he's called us to in specific situations to bring peace to a lost world. To be peacemakers in that context. Last night in Castro Valley and I think the Hayward area, there was a power outage. It started about six o'clock, went to about nine thirty, three and a half, four hours of darkness for thirty four thousand people. Pretty big power outage. So when you're looking down your street, it's not like, well, you can see lights two blocks away. You look out over the hills and there it's utter darkness. And as I was uh, looking outside and just kind of gazing on this kind of strange phenomena of a total pitch black for that length of time, you're seeing I've seen people walking up the hill, which I can hardly see. I mean, nothing pitch black over a large area. People walking around and, you know, you could tell it was going on in some homes. People are searching for a flashlight. They're searching for candles. They're, they're wanting to find the light, but they're in total darkness. And Jesus says in John chapter eight, he says, I'm the light of the world. He says, if you follow me, you'll no longer walk in darkness. Now, for a number of us here, that has been the reality of our experience. We are now walking in the light and following him. Thank God. But it ought to burden our souls And if it doesn't, we need to do some serious examination that there are more than 34,000 people walking in spiritual darkness. And you say, well, I really can't relate to 34,000. True. You don't know 34,000 people. But do you know a next door neighbor? Do you have a family member? Do you have somebody who you work with? Somebody you go to school with somebody that you do the shopping with? That's that actual person that you see. They are in darkness that they don't know the Lord. And the lights came back on about three and a half hours later last night. But that darkness that the scripture talks about for those who don't know God. Is a eternal one. And so when I read these verses, I can glaze right over this very quickly. You can read this beatitude in about five seconds. But how seriously am I thinking about and asking God to examine my heart to what it means to be a peacemaker when it comes to being an evangelist? Again, not all of us are going to be evangelists, but all of us are called to be a witness. And this is where the context of this whole Beatitudes comes from and being salt and light. God wants us to be part. And what he's saying here is part of the solution. There are not only two religions in the world, but for a, we're going to keep it really simple today. There's also two kinds of people in the world, believers and unbelievers. But I'll give it another example two others kinds of folks. There's the thermostat people and there's the thermometer people. Now, you might be thinking here today, what am I? You know, am I a thermostat? Am I a thermometer? A thermometer reflects the climate in the room. If the room is cold, it's cold. If the temperature outside is hot, it's hot. A thermostat can change the climate in the road, right? It can change a cold room into a warm one and vice versa. A peacemaker is a thermostat person. We can be used to change the climate. You ever been in a room where everyone is negative and everybody's complaining and there's just this heaviness? Of a cloud, it could be sunny everywhere else, but in this environment where you've just walked into, a cloud is descended. It's like a fog. We're those kind of people that can actually, by the way we speak, and maybe by that kind word we say or that action that we do, it's very practical. The Lord Jesus doesn't make things complicated for us to understand. We can be a peacemaker in these very clear and specific examples. I walked into my room. I was in meetings all week and I came in after kind of an intense night the night before. Nothing really bad, but just intense. And I came in with a bag of donuts. And that made everybody happy. It started off the day right. You know, it's just the right action to take in that context. Maybe not the healthiest, but in that sense, the right one. What are you going to do when somebody's gossiping and complaining? Do you want to? And the flesh wants to, I'd love to give a little dig in that person too, you know? Uh, I'll say something that doesn't sound totally slanderous, but it's kind of halfway. Or do you just do whatever it is? I know my mom has been an example of where she's living at the villa, where sometimes maybe there might be conversations at the table, and her answer, she just doesn't comment. Just removes it. You know, when you take out the wood, the fire goes out, this, the proverb says. What are the results of being a peacemaker? The Lord Jesus says, we shall be called sons of God. I can't think of a better thing to be called, can you? I mean, I know if you think of your last name and if you're interested in genealogies, you think of your name and you think of the significance behind that name you have here on earth. But nothing compares to being a son of God. Nothing does. The Greek word in the context here for this carries the thought Of dignity, honor, and standing of being a son of God. That's why, you know, when you see yourself and you look in the mirror, you know, I'm aware of the different issues that how people feel, and then to the extreme that happens sometimes where people have such a view of themselves that it even, or the circumstances that are going on in them uh, around their life or with them, that they'll even threaten to kill themselves or in some cases do. Taken I don't know how many calls like that over the years of where someone has done that. But when you look in the mirror and you see that you're a, a son of God, you're a daughter of God, that God has that value for you to the extent that you were never and I were never worthy, but He doesn't see us as worthless because He gave us His Son, and that now you have this honor and dignity of being one of His children. Boy, you you and I by this act of grace should be able to hold our head high. And just be utterly grateful for the grace of God and what he's done in our lives. Scripture says we're the apple of his eye. And what the Bible says when he's saying that, he's not talking about Granny Smith or uh, Red and Delicious or any of the other kind of apples. But what the Hebrew word meant for that was it's the pupil that he's referring to. The apple of the eye, the most vulnerable part of the body, that part that's tender and sensitive. And, of course, when something happens to your eye, you protect it and shield it from any kind of harm. Immediately, that's why you want to blink and cover it so that you don't want that to happen to your eye. And God feels that way about his children. That's how he sees us. You touch one of his children and you've poked your finger in his eye, figuratively speaking. That's why he says in Malachi 317, he says that we're his treasure. Other translation says we're his jewel. Isaiah 56, he will give us an everlasting name. Psalm 56, 8, says that he keeps our tears in his bottle. Isn't that amazing? Every tear that you've shed, that God values you and I like that. To be sons of God, that he, he wraps them up in a bottle. He stores them. It's almost too much to take in, isn't it? Attitude number eight. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you. And he goes on to add those further comments in verses ten and eleven. Well, here's the interesting thing. When I was reading these two verses, I thought, boy, this is this is another message. And maybe another day it will be. But this issue of persecution is huge. As we're living out those seven other beatitudes, to the degree we're living out, those seven beatitudes is going to be the, um, if you like, the evidence or the intensity of what happens on the eighth when it comes to persecution. And isn't it an irony? And I'll explain a couple of, uh, about that a little bit more just before we wrap here in a few minutes. Isn't it an irony when you think of it, when the Lord Jesus was giving this sermon in this beatitude just before this? He says, blessed are the peacemakers. For you shall be called sons of God. But then yet on the other hand, he's talking now about blessed are those who have been persecuted. You know what high why that is, I mean. Because sometimes as you're living out your Christian life, as you're living out the life that the Lord Jesus has for you, as you're being that evangelist, as you're being that witness, you're going to be persecuted for it. So on the one hand, you're a peacemaker. But on the other hand, you're a troublemaker in the eyes of the world. And it really raises the question, and I was thinking long and hard about this, because as you think about what has happened to the martyrs and the prophets of old, and you think about how, and you read through the Gospels, how the apostles were persecuted. Peter, hanging upside down. Every other apostle except John, who died on a lonely exile, all being crucified for their their witness, for their life. For the message that they carried, for their association with the Lord Jesus, they were troublemakers in the eyes of the world. Matthew ten thirty four, Jesus said that He did not come to bring peace, but in this context, what He says is, "But a sword." And you think about it, and you go, "Well, this is this is this is interesting stuff because there was never anyone that was more loving, or there was never a greater peacemaker than Jesus Christ." And as we know from reading the gospel, some responded marvelously and wonderfully to that love and to that grace that Jesus offered them. But on the other hand, everywhere he went, he created an antagonism. If they weren't trying to throw stones at him, there were crowds that, and especially the leaders that were, that were murmuring and they were unhappy with his, what he was saying. So he wasn't trying to be an antagonist in the sense of how we might be, just because we're being juvenile. But he brought conflict, not because of his conduct, but because of his message. And of course, sinners, the religious, the self-righteous, didn't like it. Luke 6:26. Jesus speaking to the disciples. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. I pondered that over the last week. I got uncomfortable with that. I wrestled with that. Because what's the implication? When everyone speaks well of you, is it because I have been absent and I have been negligent, and I have been fearful of men that I have never wanted to broach the subject that sometimes gets people mad, and they're now going to speak of me in a way that I wouldn't want to hear if I heard it. Luke 9:26. I don't like these verses with the 26 in them, but they're in the Word of God and they're truth. Luke 9:26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Ever been ashamed of Jesus? There's some folks that like to put it on a bumper sticker that they know him. Some people wear a T-shirt. That's up to them. But ashamed? Oh, we like to talk about a lot of things. It doesn't cross our mind for a second. Certain issues to broach and talk about. It's safe. Talk about Jesus. Ooh, now it's getting a little, it gets tough, doesn't it, sometimes? And that's why the scriptures talk about us to pray for boldness. Because even as as big as we are, as tall as we are, as large as we are, as big as our muscles are, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, sometimes you're timid of who Jesus is. And you don't really want to go there Even if the Holy Spirit's prompting you to, because you don't want the hassle of what's going to happen. Rock the boat. Who wants to rock the boat? Now, obviously, we don't want to do this in a way that's improper. Scriptures talk about how we're to speak to people with gentleness. And we should be gracious. And we should have empathy and compassion and all those things that the Lord wants for us. But sometimes it happens. There's a T-shirt standing. We've seen them, you know, when you're out in a, as a tourist or in your, some store, it says one person said there was this one T-shirt that said so many Christians, so few lions. And really what that was talking about, it wasn't a funny kind of a joke, because what it was saying was, is that was a T-shirt was making reference to the first century practice of throwing Christians to the lions in the Colosseums at Rome. And you think about as you read the scriptures and you read any of church history, and you think of what some men and women went through. They gave up their very lives for the Savior because they were so passionate in their love for him. They were so devoted to him and his cause that that was their their fate. And Paul, who was very aware of this going on, said all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution." Well, I want to tell you that there is a way to escape persecution. Now you're saying, okay, I'm listening now. What what is it? Approve of the world's standards. Fit right in. We can accept the world's morals and ethics. And we can even live like the world lives. We can be a silent witness. And what I mean by that, I'm looking at myself. I'm not pointing the finger at you. But we can basically just blend in and just take that theme. Well, I'm all about friendship evangelism. I just want everybody to be my friend. And then when they ask me, why is it that you live like this? And then I'll tell them, but that's the only time it's ever going to happen. We can laugh at its jokes. We can enjoy enjoy its entertainment when you know that if the Lord Jesus was here with you and you you said, hey, I'm going so-and-so, Lord, come along. And if we would rather say, you know, Lord, in this situation, I'd rather you stay home. I'm heading out. I'll be back in two hours. Then that's your litmus test right there as to what you're involved in and what I'm involved in. If the Lord Jesus can't come along with us because we believe he's present, we, we say that. But if he can't come along, then we've got to rethink what it is we're doing. I like to think that he would watch a sports game with me. And it would be a great opportunity to have some fellowship with him. I'd like to think that as I drive to work, he's right there saying, I'm coming to work with you today too. And I like to think in every context of my life that I can know that I'm in purity and in righteousness and the Lord is there with me. Another way to avoid persecution is don't tell people they're lost. And above all else, never mention the word hell. Don't do it. I remember years ago when I became a Christian, I shared with my mom. And I'll tell you, the first reaction was not positive. I remember saying, how can you, you know, basically to the words, how can you call me a sinner? You know, church going, religious woman. And my sister and I were sharing as well. And in a way, I almost felt like, oh, what have I done? You know, I've rocked the boat. It's just creating strife now in the home. This was as a man around uh, 18, I guess, at the time, 17. But guess what God did? He used those words and the words of my sister and other believers in, in her life. And some months later, she trusted the Savior. And then came to a place to where she'd be able to deal with not only living now as, with, as, a, as a believer, but having the ability to cope. Like when I think of attitudes of what I've seen in her since my father died in January, after 53 years of marriage, and then within that same month to lose your home of 50 plus years. And then to realize, being told that you actually have a serious medical condition. All like that within a week. And you say, well, how do you cope? Well, that's where you rely on the Lord and that's where these attitudes and so when others are seeing her glory to God at where she now lives in San Ramon. They're saying your attitude is an encouragement to me. But it's because of all that started back when someone started to share. You never know what's going to happen and how God's going to get the glory in the life of someone you witness to. You never know. As we wrap up. When we're talking about persecution, the Lord Jesus says, so what should be your attitude? Should you pout? Should you, you know, sulk? Should you just go hide in your house, in your bedroom, and just never come out for the rest of your life when you're persecuted? No, he says something amazing in verse 12. He says, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Greek word means to be really glad. You say, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? You know, it's, it's hot out there. Do you need a 911 for heat stroke? Well, no. This is worth the words of God. Be glad. Why be glad? Why does he say that? Why does he say in the Greek, basically, not only be really glad, but jump and skip and shout for joy that you're being persecuted. And he gives the two reasons in the text as we close. Your reward in heaven is great. And that's a subject in and of itself that is going to require extensive study. What are this, these rewards all about? Is it to hear his voice, good and faithful servant, well done? Is it the crowns that the scriptures talk about? Or is it even in addition to what he says in Matthew nineteen twenty seven? Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What's in it for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What's the Lord talking about? What is this authority that he's going to give us in the future? For being in that state is that part of the reward? I think it is. For how you view persecution, not because you've done and I've done stuff that we should get in trouble for because of our behavior, but for when we're doing it for His name's sake. And then second, He says they persecuted the prophets before you. Rejoice. You say, okay, what's the connection there? Well, look, folks, and maybe you can relate to this. Folks love to be around sometimes people who are the the elite circle. They take a lot of pride in being able to say that this person's my friend and I know this person and I rub shoulders with this and I've been over to their home and I've had a conversation with this. Could be anybody, you name it, you know who I'm thinking of. And what the Lord is saying is, is that you're in the company of the prophets. If you experience degrees of persecution and that's a pretty elite crowd to be around and to be associated with forget about the world and all that they have to offer. Think of the prophets and he says you're identified with them as you experience persecution. And folks, the thing is, and I know this in my own life here in the United States, we are getting just little doses of it, but it's been intensifying over the last 15, 20, 30 years. And only God knows what's it going to be like 20 years from now. And what's happening in other parts of the world where there are believers that are still being martyred and crucified for the Savior this very day because of their allegiance to him. We're in a pretty classy company when we're in with the prophets. It's a good circle. And you know what the last thing is? Persecution is a verification that you are a child of God. If you're never being persecuted... If nobody's ever saying a word about you, is it because you've never or I've never or rarely, hardly ever opened my mouth to tell anybody that I'm a follower of Jesus and this is why you need to be one too? And if what's become now the priority more in my life is that I want everybody to like me, I don't want anybody to say anything about me, then we're going to need to examine ourselves. Well, the person who lives out these Beatitudes, and I want to be that kind of person myself. I don't want to just read it and say, now I've read it. I want to live this out. I want to live it out at my home. I want to live it out wherever God has me, outside my home. Because I see from this passage that that's truly the one that knows joy. That's truly the blessed one, is the one who practices this. And I think we want that, don't we? We want that in our lives. We want to be that kind of testimony to God. May these qualities, I pray, just continue to just increase in that wherever we're at in our walk right now, we'll take comfort just to say, God, how do you want to increase me in this area so that you get glory? And you know what? And I even get, by your grace, reward, and you honor it, not because I'm going to be saved because of it, but because you take notice of it, and I want to please you. Let's pray. Lord, we want to just thank you for the powerful preacher you are. And we want to thank you the weight behind every word that you say. We think of the authority that folks noticed that you had and that you spoke like no other man ever spoke. Father, I just pray that we will be salt and light this coming week in every situation and every circumstance that we find ourselves in. We pray that we will really lean on you and realize our poverty and our own strength to be the kind of men and women you want us to be but we pray that we'll just be growing in grace and in the knowledge of you father i continue just to pray i understand randy's not well with a back injury i pray that you'll heal him soon and quickly and as well as for, for dean and joan lord we pray that you'll provide comfort for them right now we ask you in this and we just pray your blessing on the rest of this day in jesus name Amen.